it's about self-love really. I would say it's about when you view yourself through a lens, use the same lens that you use to view those people that you love and care about. Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today's guest is a woman of many talents. She currently practices as an NHS GP with a passion for preventative medicine and sports medicine. She is passionate about tackling chronic health and promoting physical activity and healthy lifestyle. So much so that in 2009, she founded the organization Fit for Life, which aims to positively change the lives of young people from challenging backgrounds. You may recognize her from ITV's This Morning, but before she was sat chatting to Holly and Phil and answering the nation's medical questions, she played the role of Amazon and Sky One's primetime show, Gladiators. We recently met for the first time after months of talking online about the Power Hour. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Zoe Williams. Yay, we yes. finally made it happen. We finally made it happen. We've been trying to get a date in the diary, but you're here. Welcome to the studio. I'm so honored to be here because I have to say your podcast is definitely my top three. I absolutely love it. So honored to be sat here with you. Oh, that's fab. Thank you. And as oh, I've got so many things that I want to talk to you about as always. But first things first, Zoe, gladiators, <laughs> gladiators. That is goals. I mean, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to that. <laughs> so first up, for anyone listening who might not know much about who you are and what you do, could you start off by telling us how you got into medicine in the first place? Well, it's, it's actually not a short story as to how I got into medicine. Um, from the age of three, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. My Jamaican grandmother was a midwife. And when I was three years old, she bought me the the plastic doctor's kit, you know, the one with the little stethoscope. Yeah. And, and she said, when you grow up, do you want to be a midwife like me? And I apparently stamped my feet and said, no. And my mum said, oh, maybe Zoe wants to be a nurse. And I said, no, I want to be a doctor. And part of me always knew that I would be a doctor, but I think because of my upbringing and where I came from, um, I was often led to believe that that wasn't really possible. Um, and, I didn't go the usual route to medicine. I didn't go straight through GCSEs, A-levels, then medical school. Um, I had three years out after my A-levels because my grades were not consistent with medical school and went to university as a, a mature student to study biomedical sciences and was very, very lucky that this opportunity came up. A lecturer came into my lecture a couple of months in and said to the 300 or so of us who were doing the combined medical sciences, um, we recognise there are a lot of people in this room who want to be doctors, but either haven't got the grades, haven't passed the interview, or something else has happened. We're the first university to do this, that was University of Newcastle upon Tyne, and it's the first time we've done it, but potentially six of you could start studying medicine next year. We're making six places available for you guys. 
and in order to make that opportunity happen in semester one you have to get a first in all four modules then you have to do an essay application then we'll interview 12 people for the six places and those six places are conditional on getting a first in all modules in semester two and I thought gosh that sounds really difficult but there's no harm in giving it a go and if I do get it and I don't want to do it I can always turn it down and and as it turned out I was the only one I was the only one wow. that got onto medicine through that path and you know like wow. wow you know I think if you I just I'm believing more and more mm -hmm. as a scientist that this the universe is quite mystical and if you visualize it and if you want it enough somehow that path will lay down in front of you and for me that happened wow that's really interesting and so when you said then you know growing up you didn't necessarily you weren't led to believe that being a doctor was something that you could achieve or that was like a realistic realistic goal would you say why why do you think that was well, I often share my story with um, children. So I'll go to schools and I'll speak to kids and, you know, I'll start off by telling them my achievements and they think that they're very different to me. And I'll follow up with telling them a little bit about me and where I came from. So um, single parent family, mum claimed benefits, um, very much a working class industrial town with lots of unemployment. So I grew up in Burnley. I had severe asthma as a child, was in and out of hospital, had a lot of time off school, and I was cripplingly shy to the extent that it was my paediatrician, who was called Dr Thistlethwaite, whose name I thought was hilarious as a child, um, actually said to my mum, you know, Zoe would really benefit from doing some form of competitive or team sport or physical activity, one, because it would help her asthma, and two, because it would help her overcome her shyness. So for me, you know, physical activity has always been a huge part of everything that I've achieved throughout my life. Um, but then when I share that with kids, you know, I come from a broken home. We didn't have any money. In fact, we were, we were quite poor. Um, and I went to a school where when I told them I wanted to be a doctor, I was told, you know, that's, that's really nice, isn't that sweet? Zoe wants to be a doctor, but you better come up with some things that are more achievable and realistic. And Part of the work I do with Fit for Life, which you mentioned, is I don't believe any child should ever be told that. So our two hashtags are, it's not where you start, it's where you end up, and hashtag yes you can. And every child should be told that they can achieve anything they want to, and you know, be helped to, to and guided along that path to achieving it. Wow, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that, you know, that narrative that you hear as a child is so, so important. It, you know, can dictate and make or break. And, you know, that's where we, I guess, where we start to form our own identity and our own self-belief. So if we're being told, oh, you can't really do that or don't get your hopes up or that's unrealistic, you know, that goes in, words have power. And then you believe that. And so you limit yourself. And I think, you know, 100%, I do believe that, yeah, children should be encouraged. They should be told that, you know, any opportunity, whatever way, some way, somehow, you might not be, you know, at a private school, you might not have access to the best or the course or this or that. But as you just, you know, gave a brilliant example of, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing that. No, 100%. I think sometimes perhaps we forget as adults, just what influence our words have on young minds. A child's belief system is pretty much set by the age of 12. And every word that we say they can, you know, that can actually influence what they believe. I think I was very lucky that 
I mean, the other thing I didn't mention is that me and my family, I was the only mixed race child that had ever gone to my secondary school. Um, We have a largely white community in Burnley with quite a large Asian community as well. But there were only two families that were black. Um, But my mum always instilled in me that the things that made me different made me special. I've always celebrated my na- my natural hair. Well, not as a teenager, from the age of about 20. Yeah. And now it's a trend. But I've always had my natural hair because my mum would always say, who was white, would always say, well, you know, if anyone says anything negative about your curly hair back in the 80s, why is everyone perming their hair? Because they want to have curly hair. And then, you know, your dark skin, your beautiful dark skin. Why is everyone going on a sunbed? back in the 80s again that was the trend so she always instilled in us what makes us different makes us special Mm. rather than the other way around and she did always say you know you can do whatever you can do so thanks to her yeah Um, well she did a good job built up your self-confidence and self-belief because you know that sometimes is all you need as well to kind of you know to show people actually I'll show you if you you know if you've already got that self-belief inside of you I think it can take you a long way so these days um you know obviously now you're uh, a GP you work within the NHS and I think the landscape of you know traditional medicine I suppose um and nutrition and holistic medicine and it's constantly changing and I personally feel like it can be really overwhelming you know it's hard to keep up with the trends the headlines the do's the don'ts so I guess my question is how has working as a GP changed from when you first started to now? I think it's changed quite a lot, actually. My personal experience, so I've been a GP for 10 years, if we include my GP trainee years. And I remember when I was, my first year as a GP trainee, I was trying to get people on my ward or people in my practice to commit to going for a walk or a run once a month and we always have to do audits when we're working in when we're training as uh, doctors and my audits would always be around something physical activity based like Mm -hmm. okay well let's take all these patients who have type 2 diabetes and let's do a lifestyle intervention and see if over six months that has an impact and 10 years ago that was laughable that was don't be silly you know we prescribe metformin for them they take their drugs we give them lifestyle advice which would generally be something like lose some weight and do some exercise which is absolutely useless to a patient who you know actually needs to be enabled and empowered to do that um and now i find ourselves we're in a world where that is very much different there is now a huge focus on lifestyle medicine and it's something that we've always practiced as doctors we've always practiced to some extent but i grew up as a doctor within the era of evidence-based medicine so i always think as a gp 30 years ago your hands were tied. Um, you didn't have a great deal of evidence-based medicine to go off. So we prescribe antibiotics for infections. Uh, as doctors, we perform surgery when that was needed. And we give a lot of lifestyle advice. And over the last 20 years, there's been this huge influence of the pharma industry. And we have all these incredible drugs that treat conditions that we didn't have access to before. So now we're looking for the science and the evidence and we're prescribing drugs. And these drugs are effective to treat disease but they often have a lot of side effects very expensive um and with that era of evidence-based medicine i think in some ways we've forgotten about the basics Mm. and And i think the nature exactly and i think now we're coming full circle and now we're sort of getting to the point where well actually before i prescribe you metformin for your type 2 diabetes which is probably going to make you feel sick and give you diarrhea in the first few weeks 
would you as a patient prefer to try making some changes to your lifestyle first? So I feel like we're coming full circle to mm-hmm. the point where we have evidence-based medicine, but we don't have to rely just on that because actually there are so many other factors than the research. When the patient sat in front of me, obviously the research and the evidence is important, but it only paints a part of the picture. Mm. Um, that patient's beliefs, their preferences, their challenges, and you know what their choice is, is just as important Hmm. as the evidence. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant to hear because especially the fact that, you know, it's not one without the other. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not to say that if you're somebody who's interested in, you know, holistic medicine or somebody who wants to make changes to their lifestyle and nutrition, it doesn't mean it's one without the other. You're never going to take medication or you're never going to see your GP. You can do both. And I think that, yeah, I think the common ground, as you described, is what we should perhaps be aiming for. But do you think, I guess now we all have access to the internet and to social media and to Google which I think for GPs must just be an absolute nightmare so has um do you think that us having this access has made us more informed as patients are are we more conscious and therefore I guess more responsible for our own health and our choices or has it just made us all overwhelmed paranoid hypochondriac what do you think (laughs) a bit of all of the above I think um I think the internet and the availability of information for patients is a wonderful thing if it's used appropriately. Um, There are a couple of incredible websites that I always direct my patients to. So patient.info is great, and NHS website, again, is really good. Um, But the issue is making the diagnosis. So if you go into Google and put in um, chest pain, for example, straight away first thing that's going to come up is heart attack 999 yeah. yeah and actually if you've just been in the gym and you've no you know lifted a weight and had a bit of a wobble then actually it's probably musculoskeletal pain and unless you're somebody who is at high risk of heart disease then almost definitely chest pain is not going to be caused by your heart but it can instill the fear into you so i think for diagnosis the internet isn't necessarily the right place um and i think you know, that's when you should be seeing a healthcare professional or a pharmacist. Uh, it doesn't necessarily always have to be the GP. But once you know what is going on, um, the internet can be a really great place to find out how best to self-manage. Hmm. But what about like, because I think when I think about the internet and people are always like, oh, if you read it on the internet, then anybody could write it. It can just be, you know, rubbish. It's not evidence-based. There's no this to back it up. It's just a blogger or, you know, people kind of come down quite heavy on that. However, I think in my experience, what I've definitely I guess benefited from with the internet and with podcasts and stuff is that it gives me like a more rounded picture so I'll listen to two people argue two different sides of the coin and then I feel like you can kind of do you know what I mean you can get a bigger picture so then you're armed with the knowledge and the questions maybe to ask the GP what about this what about that instead of just for example I'm thinking about diets and stuff instead of just saying okay you know keto or vegan or all these things I'm not saying go on the internet and get all the info but you can do you know what I mean you can kind of balance it out 100% when it comes to lifestyle there are so many different opinions about different things and if that opinion is coming from somebody who is deemed to be credible within that world then they're all valid um and do you know what medicine the human body particularly nutrition 
it's not a one size fits all. It's not an absolute science. It completely depends on the person and it depends on the context. What I would say is obviously there is loads of fake health news out there and you do have the, we won't name any names, but you know, the celebrities who may be promoting things for self gain. And you know, we, we know they are influencing people. People are buying into that. So my first word of advice is if you're looking for information that is in any way related to health online, then use a source that's credible. You know, if you want to know about skin, you maybe you want to look for a dermatologist. If you want to know about gut health, maybe look for somebody who is qualified within that. Um, but even within that, within my profession as GPs, as a GP, it's quite a unique job because we know a little bit about a lot. So if you take someone who's an orthopedic surgeon, for example, um, they know a lot about a little bit. And then if they subspecialize in wrist surgery or scaphoid surgery, one particular bone in the wrist, you know, they know huge amounts about a very small amount. As GPs, we know a small amount about a huge amount. Um, but that's just one side of our job. That's the knowledge. And then we you know, try and keep up with the evidence as best as possible as well. The other side is understanding human beings. And that's the real science of being a GP is one, our communication skills, because we consult with babies all the way through to end of life care mm -hmm. um, and good news and bad news. And then within the context of that, we have to take into consideration that person's language skills. They may not speak very good English. Often we communicate in sign language half the time. Um, combine that with the patient's mental health and their social determinants. And the real skill of being a GP is knowing a little bit about everything and then translating that into a consultation so that you help the person in front of you. Mm, I gosh. feel like I've gone off topic no, and but I can't it's so, remember what no, the initial question No, was. it's great because that's something that I always, I have so much respect for that. And I think, you know, GPs, you know, you have such a small window of time. And the fact that, as you just said, I always think this, you could be talking to somebody about the contraceptive pill. Then you might be seeing a baby with a rash. Then you might be seeing someone with a chronic illness. Like, it's so vast and varied that it's almost like, yeah, how can anyone be expected to know about everything, it's just too much. And like, we don't, yeah. we don't know everything about everything, but we know where to find the answers. Mm. And the beauty of GP is that we can bring people back. So there are many times I have a consultation with a patient and they're presenting with a huge number of symptoms that are very vague and I can't sit there and give them a diagnosis. And yeah. I'll, I'll be honest, I'll say, look, you know, I've listened and I'm hearing this, this and this. I don't know what's causing it. Mm. I know it's not, can, it doesn't fit with cancer it doesn't fit with that so I can reassure you so I'm not particularly worried and we've got time to do some investigations but yeah. often you know, we things. don't have the answer yeah. yeah and then we refer but I think we refer much less often than people think it used to be back in the day that if somebody had a diagnosis of type 1 or type 2 diabetes or arthritis we'd refer to a specialist or asthma whereas now actually as GPs we manage the vast number of cases of everything um, it's only those that have difficult to manage disease that we refer to as specialists. Yeah, so I guess as we're hearing, you know, it's it's a big topic. And so I think that the topic of health in itself, you know, it's huge and, you know, we could go on all day. Um, but could you give us perhaps three things to prioritise? So the three things that you feel would have the biggest impact on improving your health. So if you could just choose three things to focus on, yeah. what we're going to get the most bang for our buck? <laughs> Oh, and it's a really hard question because, again, it depends. And for five people who sat in front of me, those three things would be different. I think thinking about perhaps the audience that's going to listen to this podcast or, you know, a general audience, I think, and these are going to be quite non-medical mm -hmm. in a sense, I think 
the biggest and most important thing for modern day people to maintain their health is about connectedness and social interactions. I think it's something that we're lacking. You know, we're more connected than ever with social media, etc. Um, but actually picking up the phone and speaking to somebody that you care about or seeing people face to face. Um, we're hearing more and more about how loneliness is deemed to be as big a health risk as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I'm, wow. I'm not 100% sure I personally agree with that, but that's been reported in a study. Um, but I think the statistic I do agree with is actually severe loneliness is 50%. You're 50% more likely to die young if you're very lonely because if you're lonely and you don't have purpose, then what have you got to live for? Wow. Um, but from a scientific point of view, it's been shown to increase systemic inflammation, increase your risk of heart disease, increase your risk of dementia. And studies have shown actually that with human beings, if we are hungry and lonely, we will choose human interaction over food. Wow. So, so that's, so that's how, how important. That's how essential it is. Yeah. Wow, I did not expect you to say that as the first one. I know that it is obviously incredibly important and people are talking more and more about mental health and, you know, um, as you said, social and connectivity. But I don't know why I'm surprised that, you know, that is, you know, the top one of three. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, what else? And I think, you know, other things that I'm going to talk about come with that. If you're interacting with other people and you're a social person you're going to be more active you're probably going to eat better and those are probably the two others so okay. you know physical activity is my thing so obviously I'm going to talk about that um but instead of saying physical activity I'll just say movement mm -hmm. um as human beings we are designed to move yeah and there was um there was something that I saw the other day saying that the typical school-aged child now spends less time outdoors than a prisoner who's in prison they spend less than an hour outdoors on a typical day. Wow. Which just breaks my heart because we are designed as human beings to move. And um, Nike did a big campaign a few years ago called Designed to Move. And they said that um, today's eight-year-olds are the first generation of human beings who are expected to have a lower life expectancy than their parents partly because, well, largely because they don't move enough. Lifestyle. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is terrifying. But also as well, like when I heard you say then you were like physical activity and then you kind of were like, or just movement. Do you feel like now, you know, if you think about us as a species and, you know, way back in the day, we're supposed to be active, aren't we? We're supposed to walk, we're supposed to climb, we're supposed to run, we're supposed to lift. We're supposed to do these things as like functional activity. You know yeah. what I mean? Walk and get water or carry this or do that. But obviously now we've got you know, we've got cars, we've got um, phones, we've got delivery, we've got everything that we need so that we never have to lift anything, walk anywhere, do anything. Yeah. But I feel like as a, you know, as a fitness fan myself and a personal trainer, I feel like now people don't want to be told almost like, you know, you've got to run or you've got to lift weights or you've got to do yoga or you've got to stretch. People want just movement, yeah. just walk from the bus, just, you know, I don't know, do, do, do the stairs instead of the escalator. It's almost like just giving those, which is I'm sure true and contributes. But what about the fact that actually, are we supposed to, I might be wrong, I'm asking you, you're the doctor. Are we supposed to like move and break a sweat and get our heart pumping and, and have muscle, uh, you know, resistance? Like, don't we need that? You're absolutely right. There, there are almost three, there are three different bits when it comes to physical activity. And I'm talking about this sort of from a public health standpoint now. Um, the most important bit is the 
moderate intensity physical activity. So 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity activity that can be brisk walking. It doesn't need to be you know, reaching your maximum, anywhere near your maximum heart rate. But moderate intensity activity is defined as your heart's beating faster, you're breathing more quickly and your body feels warmer but still able to have a conversation with a friend. So for many of us, that's a brisk walk if we're you know, in fairly good health. Um, but also I think muscle strengthening exercise, particularly as we get older, mm. is so important. And that doesn't need to be in a gym. It's just trying to make life a little bit harder for yourself, which is something that we're not inclined to do. As human beings, we will take the path of least resistance. We're designed to do that. Yeah. If we're in a shopping center and Marks and Spencer's is on the first floor and there's an escalator there, there's a lift and somewhere hidden there's some stairs. We're not gonna go and find the stairs because we want the path of least resistance. Um, but challenging ourselves just to make our lives that little bit more active by doing the things that you say um, getting off the bus to stop earlier, parking a little bit further away at the supermarket, taking the stairs, um, carrying the heavy shopping bags, all those things do contribute. Um, and actually sedentary behavior, so sitting for prolonged periods of time, is a risk factor for health independently of how much exercise you do. So ideally, we need to be doing the you know 20 minutes or so per day of physical activity and not and sitting movement. for prolonged periods of time and moving and doing something to strengthen our muscles, particularly after the age of 35, yeah. which is when sarcopenia sets in. So that's when actually we start to lose muscle mass yeah. unless we you know, actually you know, maintain it. Yeah, because that's something I'm trying to encourage people more to do. And I think sometimes they just think I'm extreme, you know, oh, Adrienne, you... But to be honest, I do think, you know, as, as you just said, as you get older, you know, that's when, you know, these things like back pain and hip pain and this. And it's like being able to live your life as you get older and to still thrive, to still be able to enjoy it, to still be able to lift your grandchildren and to be able to go on a trampoline with them or swim or cycle. Like these things shouldn't be... You know what I mean? Like, oh, you can't... I just want everyone to, I guess, be able to kind of have a better enjoyment of their life without this kind of, I guess, it's not a prescribed thing. Like, so you don't have to go to the gym and get on a bike. What about actually cycling outside? Exactly. Like, why don't we move anymore? Exactly. And I love what you touched upon there. As a clinician, when I'm working with a patient and trying to encourage them to be more active, what motivates us as individuals is very different. And for yeah. older adults... It is the things that you've said. It's maintaining their independence, being able to play with their grandchildren. And when I've had patients and they come and tell me that about their successes, they never say, oh, I can now lift this amount of weight in a gym or yeah. I've lost this amount of weight. They say on Saturday, my grandchildren came over and I was able to run and actually catch them up in the park. That's the stuff that matters to people. Yeah, wow. Well, I hope the people listening will encourage others around them because it's not necessarily the people listening to this show. Yeah. I feel like it's their parents or their, do you know what I mean? Exactly. And, you know, one of the things is, I think as our parents get older or grandparents or aunties, uncles, as people, we... We feel like we're doing a kind thing when we say, don't do your shopping, I'll do it for you. Don't tackle the garden, I'll do that for you. And actually, particularly around the, the time of retirement, which is when we see physical activity, physical activity levels drop off, that is when the kindest thing to do is actually encourage people to do it more. By all means, say, I'll come and do the garden with you, I'll come mm. and do the shopping with you, but we must stop giving that message that it's time to wind it. down and do less because that's actually harmful. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, just go and look at a triathlon. You see like 80-year-olds doing it and you're like, wow, that's just amazing. My friend Eddie, Eddie Brocklesby, she's 84 and she does Ironman triathlons wow. and she is incredible. She's yeah. my hero. Amazing. That's goals. Okay. And so recently, this is um, a little bit off what we're talking about, but I've just wanted to ask you this. Basically, I've been listening to a podcast recently where they're talking about the future of medicine, the future of science. AI is a big topic, which is coming up loads everywhere. I don't know if you're hearing it, but- yeah. Maybe just within what I'm reading, I'm just like AI everywhere. So this guy suggested that in the future, we're going to have machines that can perform operations. We'll have machines that will be able to do scans and diagnoses and, you know, minor ops and all these things. And basically we're saying that for the next generations of doctors and nurses and, and healthcare professionals, you know, they're going to need less doctors, less surgeons, sorry, and less people to do that. But they're going to need more people with, you know, the the skills to care for people, to communicate with them, to look after them. So, yeah, I don't know how much you've heard about AI, but can you tell us what do you think is the future of healthcare? First thing I'd like to say to all the doctors out there, don't panic. <laughs> There's no jobs for you. The machines will, are coming. <laughs> the machines are coming and they will do some of our work but I think they'll create more work for doctors. Um, it is a topic I know a bit about. I contributed to a Horizon documentary on BBC, which was called 10 Things You Need to Know About the Future. And, and my bit of that was to talk about whether an AI doctor could take over my job as a GP. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion was, absolutely not. Um, it never could, because it is about, kind of like we spoke about before, that human element. Um, but if a machine can actually do some of the parts of my job that don't require me to be a human being, which means I can spend more time doing that part, that's something I'd welcome. And I kind of relate it to when we first got x-rays and ct scanners and mri scanners so prior to that in order to see if somebody had a chest infection we would have to use our clinical skills and listen carefully with the stethoscope now we have a quick listen and we send them for an x-ray and that does the job for us and it does it more accurately for us and that certainly hasn't reduced the amount of work that we have as doctors if anything it's increased it um, but it means that we can focus more on other elements mm. so but what about say for example like these like the surgical stuff so for example the machine that's going to inject your spine with the epidural instead of the hand because apparently the human hand you know human error doctors work long hours they might be tired you know they might i don't know like have a shaky hand yeah. so apparently you know this machine is going to have you know 100 percent yeah. uh, accuracy which we cannot have would you feel confident having a machine give you an epidural or would you rather it be a doctor a person oh, putting you on the spot now <laughs> i guess i want to look at the data like yeah. once you know once it's been tried and tested but that already exists a right. lot of surgeons are now operating they're operating the robot which is inside the person so they're making these tiny incisions and they're going in not just with cameras but with actual little operating hands that wow. they that they operate I think currently in the NHS, the typical amount of time you wait for a hip replacement is a year. So bring on these machines that can help <laughs> us deal with that until that waiting list is down to a day. Yeah. I don't think surgeons need to worry. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Well, I'm fascinated by it. And I just, all future things, whether it's trends, whether it's behavior, social, AI. So yeah, let's see what's, what's coming up. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Okay, Zoe, I would love to talk to you now about the Power Hour because I think by now everybody knows that I am an early bird and we've talked about this before, you know, before the show about the fact that I think you said to me that the world is not designed for for night owls and that it's a, you know they get a bad a bad deal. So, yeah, talk to us about also I know you tried the power hour. So you're naturally a night owl, right? 100%. Yeah, and you tried the power hour, which you told me. So I want to know why did you try it and how did it go? All right. Well, I tried it because of this podcast okay. and because of you and you know just hearing about the benefits that it's given you and given other people and hearing all these positive stories about your guests and how they get up early and they have that first hour and it's all for them I thought do you know what let's give it a go mm-hmm. um I did it for about a week yep and I felt great I have to say I was so productive what did you do so what so when you tried it for the week what time were you getting up and what were you doing in the morning so for me to be able to do this I was going to the gym first thing in the morning so I was getting my gym session in first thing um and I was actually being able because I tend to I've got my stuff with me I carry my gym kit with me every day in the hope that at some point in my day I'll be able to squeeze in a gym session if I'm going to do that and usually about three times a week I manage it so for this week I went every morning um but for me to succeed at that I had to have my trainers, my gym kit next to my bed. So I'd wake up, glass of water, gym kit on. Before I even had time to think about it, I was out the door, everything prepared the night before. And what Be- time was it? About six? Six. Six, okay. Yeah, so quarter to six. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, if I've got the excuse to creep back into bed, I'll creep back in. So I did it for a week and I loved it, but it got to the weekend and yeah, it all went to pot. Um, <laughs> and for me... I think I would benefit from doing it if I could be consistent, mm-hmm. but I haven't managed to nail the consistency of it yet. Okay, but I'm glad, well, I'm going to talk about the night owl thing with you now, but I'm glad you said that you loved it because I was, yeah, I guess I was worried that you might have said, oh, I got up, I hated it, I hated the alarm, I felt tired all day, but no, you felt good. You physically, you mentally, you felt good. Yeah, I was able to get to sleep early, which is something that surprised me. So I was getting into bed at about 9.30, 10 o'clock, um, maybe reading or doing something, and I was actually able to get to sleep before 11, which I really surprised myself because I thought I would have struggled with that right and so naturally you're a night owl yes. so what's your usual when you're not trying to do the power hour what is your usual cycle of sleeping waking um so probably 1am okay is when I will naturally want to go to bed um unless I force myself to go earlier um I'm quite a sociable person as well so I am the person that always says yes if there's a social event going on yeah. so that also determines what time I go to bed and getting up in the morning, I will get up as late as I possibly can to the minute. If I can have another minute in bed, I'll have it. Yeah. And so when you, what time would you normally wake up then? Like um, today, for example. So today I woke up at eight. Mm-hmm. So I got a bit of a lie in this morning. Um, the days that I do this morning, I get to have a lie in. So okay. I get to lie in till about eight. Um, but my wake time is completely determined by what time I have to get up. So sometimes it might be 5 a.m. Yeah. if I've got to travel somewhere to do some filming. On Mondays, always a GP day. So that's a 6.45 getting up so that I can get into work for 8 o'clock. So there is a science behind this, right, Zoe? So what about, you know, is there something that determines whether we are early birds, night owls? Is there a science behind that? 
that there 100% is. It's down to our genetics. So it tends to run in families. So all my family are night owls. Um, it's actually called your chronotype. Okay. So you know you have phenotypes and all this. So it's called your chronotype. And genetically, you are predisposed to either being an early bird or a night owl. And they've done studies that have actually shown in some of these studies quite recently that the way your brain is wired, your brain connectivity can determine whether or not you're naturally a night owl or an early bird. So what this means is because society determines when we should function, which mm -hmm. is for most of us between nine till five, if you're not naturally a person who physiologically is designed to function in that way, it can be quite difficult because the first half of your working day, you're basically suffering from jet lag. It's like having really? jet lag for okay. half of your working day. And, and this is part of the reason, I think, why people who are night owls don't tend to suffer jet lag very badly. And if you're a shift worker, like I was in my junior doctor days, you can go from days to nights and it doesn't really affect you. Because you're used to spending half of your life jet lagged anyway, Gosh. you've kind of got a tolerance to it. Wow. Okay. So there is a science behind it. Um, and as you said, that does make it more difficult for people who are, I guess, genetically night owls to have to get up. And I guess even like in education to have to get to school and have to function and be on, but can you change it? Or is it, you know what I mean? Is there things that we can do to shift if we want to join the power hour crew, but we're a <laughs> night owl, what can we do? So, so you can, I mean, you're genetically always going to be predisposed. So it's about being consistent and not slipping back into your old ways. Um, there are two main approaches um, one is to start with the night time one is to start with the morning time so if you force yourself consistently to get up at a particular time each day then the chances are you're going to feel more tired in the evenings so you're more likely to sleep um, the other way is to focus on the night time so I know you tend to, tend to get to bed early so you're more likely to sleep but people who are genuine 100% night owls they're just not going to get to sleep. It's just not going to work for them, um, which makes me think I'm perhaps not 100% because I could get to sleep. Mm -hmm. But the tactic for them is to go to bed later and later every night. And it takes about two weeks to do this. So it's a technique used by sleep therapists. Go to bed later? Yeah, so if, okay. you, go, if you normally go to sleep at one o'clock, force yourself to stay up till three o'clock, and the next night till five o'clock. I'm so surprised to hear you say that. You push yourself around the clock no. until you're going to bed at 9 p.m. and you're so exhausted, you can sort of trick your mind into that pattern. Wow. There's some evidence around that. But again, it's all about being consistency because then you have that holiday where Weekend it all turns on its head and you're back to being a night owl. Gosh, okay, that's fascinating. I really didn't expect you to say that. So if you're already going to bed late, make it later, later, later. So I guess to the point of exhaustion, yeah. and then you're finally gonna get into bed early. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, a typical night owl is a type of person, you know you're a night owl if you need your alarm to get up, it's not gonna happen without it. Um, you tend to skip breakfast, you're not necessarily feeling hungry in the morning, and at the weekends or days off, you do sleep in, and you can actually sleep in till the early afternoon, uh, whereas, as you'll know yourself, I'm sure morning morning people, they wake up naturally, they really enjoy their breakfast and feel hungry, love the mornings and feel tired at night time. Mm, but it's funny because I do think I've switched. I don't think I was a complete night owl from what you've just said, but I definitely used to be, yeah, I used to go to bed late. I used to be trying to do lots of things at night, like on my computer, watching TV, on my phone. I think I used to go to bed really at like half 11. Yeah. And I used to probably get up quite tired and I didn't jump out of bed like I do now. Like, I don't know, I kind of have, forced it and now it's become a habit i guess it's been two years now of doing yeah. it um so i've shifted it a bit and it, it naturally shifts through the life course as well so teenagers are night most teenagers are night owls and it's tricky for teenagers because 
for the average teenager, their body clock tells them to go to bed at about midnight and they need about nine to 10 hours sleep. But right. because they're forced to get up at seven or eight o'clock for mm. school, um, that you know that can be quite detrimental. And they are now some schools are shifting that so that teenagers don't start school till lunchtime, right. and they're seeing better grades and better better behaviour as a result of that. Oh, cool! I actually heard something recently about sleep, and they were talking about weekends, saying that if you've got teenagers, don't be saying to them, "Oh, you know, you're wasting the day. Get out of bed." They do need that sleep. Like if they literally sleep all weekend, yeah. they need to. Yeah, they catch up at the weekend because they're forced to get up early in the day wow interesting stuff okay awesome so Zoe do you have a power hour challenge for our listeners this week so basically I ask the guest each week to give us something that we could try this week to that everyone can get involved in and it can be anything between from being more productive to getting better sleep to a health hack like anything you can think of that we could try this week a challenge a challenge a challenge a challenge I think because I'm saying that the most important thing we can do for our health is focus on connect connectivity my challenge is to pick up the phone and actually have a conversation with three friends that you haven't spoken to in the past month yes i love that i love that and i love to talk on the phone so i'll be doing that and think (laughs) of my three people to ring awesome thank you so much and for anybody who is listening who might want to follow you online on instagram or um on twitter and where can we find you online and in real life so Instagram and Twitter, it's at Dr. Zoe Williams. So it's a D-R-Z. Um, and in real life... In real life. So are you going to be at an event soon? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. My, I'm, my diary is a nightmare. I've got no idea. <laughs> will you announce them on Instagram if there's events coming up? I will. I will. In fact, I'll do a little post today. That's a good point about the events that I've got coming up. It'll be a good reminder for me too. Awesome. Check that out, everyone. Okay. And my closing question, which I ask every guest on the show, is about time because it's the power hour and because I value time so much. So firstly, thank you, Zoe, for giving me your time today. I believe that time is our most valuable thing. We can't ever get more of it and we can't ever get it back. So what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you? Um, The most valuable thing that time has taught me, it's about self-love really. I would say it's about when you view yourself through a lens, use the same lens that you use to view those people that you love and care about. And I think it's something that happened to me around about my 30th birthday. For the first time ever, I looked in the mirror and I saw the good things rather than the bad things and learned to focus on them. And it's something that comes later in life. And we always look back at pictures of us five years ago, 10 years ago and think, oh my God, look, I was so amazing. Um, Yet we look at ourselves in the mirror and we think, this is grim. You know in 10 years, you're gonna look back and think you're so amazing. So why not do that now? And a technique it was a light bulb moment for me i was actually looking at a magazine article and it was mel b scary spice walking out the sea looking fabulous looking strong looking elegant looking beautiful and i thought wow she looks amazing and then i thought hang on a minute if i put my head on her shoulders superimpose it just using the power of the mind i looked at it and thought "Mm, actually no don't like this don't like that and i learned in that moment that i view myself through a very different lens to how i view other people and it takes work to maintain it but I think that's one of the most valuable things time has taught me is be kind to yourself yes I love that thank you so much I'm definitely going to give that a try this week and I think it's really really important and as you said I think it's something that can only you can only 
experience I think as you said getting older maybe turning yeah. 30 for you but yeah I encourage I hope that other people can do the same thank you so much Sarah it's been awesome thank you so much and we didn't even talk about the fact you were a gladiator oh I'll have to come back and do it another time yeah I mean <laughs> trust me the fact that when I found that out I was just gassed and I think I told AJ about it because I was like did you know she was a gladiator like that's <laughs> mad so yeah goals Zoe I was very impressed with that thanks so much for listening everyone I really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the power hour remember you can rate and review us on iTunes let us know if you're trying the challenge and if you enjoyed this episode then share it with someone else who you think would benefit from hearing Zoe's message thanks so much have an awesome week see ya see ya bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.